0: Welcome to all of you, so, so glad to see you tonight. Thank you so much for being here. I am so encouraged at your presence tonight, and uh, I want to say the same thing to anybody watching online. These are going to be living on YouTube for, uh, for I guess, for in perpetuity, and if you are watching, I just want to say that uh, that is an indication of something. It's an indication that you are interested in prophecy which is to say you're interested in the Bible because that book is the prophecy of God, okay? Two different kinds of prophecy that people generally talk about. The first is called didactic prophecy. Didactic prophecy is is merely referring to God speaking through his appointed prophet, and that spokesman says this is what God has said. And so really in a sense, anytime we open the Bible as I do on Wednesday nights or on Sunday morning and, and literally read from it, anytime you do that as just a Christian who opens their Bible and reads it aloud or, or uh, shares what's in there and you say, this is what God has said, you are engaging prophetically. That is didactic prophecy. That is forthtelling This is what God has said. The second kind of prophecy is called predictive prophecy. And this is what we ordinarily are referring to when we talk about Bible prophecy. And this is not foretelling, thus says the Lord. This is where we read in Scripture that there is an event that is being foretold that has not yet come to pass. And sometimes we read about events that are foretold that by our time have, in fact, come to pass but there are also events spoken of in Scripture that are a time yet future to you and I, and they have not yet come, and we refer to that as eschatology, last things. And so that is predictive prophecy. It's not forthtelling, it is foretelling. And so that is the kind of prophecy that we're going to be focused on for the next eight weeks as we look at this topic in Scripture. It's been said that 25% of your Bible is predictive Bible prophecy. now that's a big chunk of scripture. I disagree with that number. I think it's more than that. I think it's much more than that. Because when people arrive at that figure of 25%, what they're doing is they're going back in the Old Testament and they're tallying up all of the strictly prophetic books. You got the major prophets, the minor prophets. And they add those up and then they go to the New Testament and they find the one prophetic book in the New Testament. What's it called? Revelation. And they do the math, and they come to 25%. But what they're ignoring is all the various passages in Scripture that pop up in decidedly non-prophetic books, you see. There are other books out there that are, well, historical narratives. Books like Genesis. Books like the Gospels, okay? And then there are letters like the letters of Paul and of Peter and so on. And then you've got books of poetry like the Psalms. And in those books, there are sections where the author will kind of go off in a predictive prophetic thing. And when you add up all of those passages, something like 40% of your Bible is predictive prophecy. Now, what if you took your Bible and a pair of scissors and you cut out 40% of the pages in your Bible, that's not being a good steward of Scripture, is it? And yet that is precisely what a lot of churches do when they ignore Bible prophecy. They chalk it up to being irrelevant, or they say it's kind of a niche interest. Folks, it's not a niche if it's 40% of your Bible. It's in there for a reason. It's important. And God wants you to either understand it or want deeply to understand it and so we're going to look at that uh, for the next several weeks and try to be a good steward of God's word together okay and that's what we're going to focus on and I'm going to show you some foundational things somebody asked me are you going to teach through revelation in this series uh, no I'm not not I can't teach revelation in eight weeks It wouldn't do you any good, all right? You gotta take a lot longer than that to teach the book of Revelation. Everybody wants to know about Revelation. Let me tell you something. You don't have a prayer of understanding Revelation unless you first understand some basic principles and concepts of Bible interpretation, and you need to really grasp some key prophecies from the Old Testament, namely from the book of Daniel. Daniel is the key to unlocking Revelation. Revelation. And so we are going over the next eight weeks to look at some key prophecies from books like Daniel. Uh, namely, we're gonna look at one that's very important called the 70 Weeks Prophecy. You ever heard of the 70 Weeks Prophecy? We're gonna study that. Uh, we're gonna look at a prophecy concerning world empires in Daniel. Uh, some of these empires have come and gone. There's one that has yet to come, at least one. There's, uh, well, there's two, really. And we're gonna look at that. We're gonna look at a person called the Antichrist We're going to look at a time, a period of time called the tribulation. Uh, We're going to look at the book of Ezekiel and we're going to see how important Israel is in fulfilling God's prophecies. And we're going to look at the distinction between Israel and the church because that's important. If you don't understand the difference between Israel and the church, you're going to be very, very confused about Bible prophecy. You're going to get a lot of it wrong. And we're going to look at some of Israel's enemies and see what will become of them as we study Ezekiel uh, 37 and 38. And we're going to close out this series, week eight of our series, we're going to look at an event that is very interesting to a whole lot of people, and it's something called the rapture. And we're gonna talk about all of that, but that's, that's some of the things that we're gonna cover in this series. But tonight, what I wanna do to start is to introduce you to a, to a concept, to a theological system, to a, to a hermeneutic. What's a hermeneutic? A hermeneutic is a method of interpretation. A hermeneutic is how you have decided to attempt to understand the Bible. And so this theological system slash interpretive method that I want to introduce you to tonight is called dispensationalism. Dispensationalism. Have you ever heard that word before? All right. Well, the word dispensation is kind of, a, kind of an antiquated word. You don't hear it a lot these days. People don't throw that one around so much. You see it in your King James Bible. If you've got a KJV, three times in the New Testament, you'll see that word. Uh, we have been studying Ephesians on the weekend. I pointed out that, that the word for dispensation does appear early on in the book of Ephesians. It's from the Greek word oikonomia. Oikonomia, we get our word economy from that. Sometimes it's translated economy. Sometimes it's translated as uh, stewardship or administration. And you can almost think of it as a period of time where you've got a special permission, right? Like when the IRS let us file our taxes late during the pandemic. That was a special permission. Now, if you're trying to operate according to that timeline now, as we're just a few days away from tax day, uh, you're going to have some problems, because Uncle Sam wants his money, right? Uh, but it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a period of time in which you get to operate in a different way. Uh, when I was in college, I had a friend named Anthony. We were good friends. Uh, Anthony and I we traveled together on a music group. We were singers. Anthony's father happens to be a well-known Bible teacher and pastor named Dr. Tony Evans. And so we were traveling, and we were in Anthony's hometown of Dallas, Texas, and he said, hey, he said to the team, he said, you guys want to go to a basketball game? We said, sure, where? And he said, well, let's go see the Dallas Mavericks. We said, oh, uh, well, uh, how much are tickets? He's like, don't worry about it. My dad's a team chaplain. We got you. And so we like, all right. So we went to the arena. Now, when we entered the arena, we did not enter through the front door, the main entrance. No, no, we were with Anthony. So we went around the side to the special entrance where the employees of the Dallas Mavericks entered. And so we went in. And when we got hungry, we didn't go wait in line at the concession stand. No, sir, we went up to the team box. And we partook of an elaborate buffet with the employees of that sports franchise. And when it was game time, I didn't go sit in no nosebleed section, no way. I got down on the floor and I was courtside, baby. My first NBA experience and I got to sit courtside. I was so close to the action, AC green sweat on me. That's how close I was, all right? And I had a great time. Now if I were to go back today, and try to see a Dallas Mavericks game, and I tried to go in that special entrance on the side of the arena, they'd say, what are you you doing here? Who do you think you are? Get lost. And if I tried to eat with the team and and the employees of the team, they'd say, "Uh, get out of here. What are you, crazy? You can't come in here. And if I tried to go down courtside, somebody would stop me and they'd say, excuse me, do you have a pass? Do you have a ticket? What's going on? Why couldn't I experience what I experienced before? Because I was operating under different rules you see when i went to that game the word oikonomia comes from two greek words oikos oikos which means house or really good greek yogurt right and that's a joke and nomia nomia which means law or rules house rules and so that's what the word means you're operating under different house rules when you go from dispensation to dispensation. And in your notes, dispensationalism is the classic way to take the Bible literally and see it as an entire unit. There are various ages, various dispensations of time in which God uh, operates in relationship to man in different ways. And when you read your Bible and you understand what dispensation you are reading in, it begins to make sense and it it becomes more cohesive. I've got a, a definition of dispensation in the little box there on the left side of your handout. And it says it's a divinely ordained period of history where requirements are made of God's people or of mankind in general. Periods of history in which God will change in his requirements of man. And so these are various ages that God has ordained throughout human history. And here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to know about dispensationalism in your notes. There's a few blanks for you to fill in. In dispensationalism, God doesn't change. That's very important. Man doesn't change. Salvation doesn't change. Change. That's a criticism of dispensationalism. People try to say, well, you're, you're advocating for different, different means of salvation throughout history. No, no. God doesn't change. Man doesn't change. Salvation doesn't change. Only the way God governs man changes. It's his governance that changes. Uh, dispensationalism is really the way that we raise children. Okay. If you have an infant, your requirement of that infant is... There's not much. Okay, it's just just be cute. That's basically it. You know, just let us take pictures of you and uh, and ooh and ah over you. There's not a lot, just you're an infant, right? You you you're not perfect, but you seem like you are, and so let's just enjoy you for what you are. When they become a toddler, well, you govern them a little differently, don't you? They're still cute, but you're gonna put a little bit you're gonna put some more regulation on their movement and what they can and can't do, right? When they get to high school, you're tempted to lock them in the room. And, uh, and so your, your governance changes across the ages. When they get to college or they're a young adult, obviously you're gonna ease up a little bit. Your dispensation might alter some more. Uh, but a simple reading of the Bible will show us that there are different dispensations, subtle changes in the way that we're governed. But here's what you need to know in your notes. Salvation is always represented, no matter what age you're in, it's always represented by faith, And the mercy of God who grants sacrifice. There's always the picture of sacrifice that points to Christ and faith is always, always uh, a component of man's being declared righteous, always. And so there are uh, some key identifying characteristics of a dispensation. So I want you to see the sequence. This is what the sequence looks like. When an age comes along, From the very beginning, it's always the same. Number one in your notes, God commands man to do or not do something, all right? There's always a command of God. Do this or don't do this, all right? Number two, man disobeys God, always. It's inevitable, every age. God issues a command, man disobeys it, okay? God gives him rope, he proceeds to hang himself. That's how it works. And then number three, God judges man and begins a new dispensation. He changes the rules. There's a judgment. There's a discipline. There's a pruning, something. And then new rules, and his form of governance changes. And we're going to see, as we study Scripture, seven obvious ages. Not everybody agrees on that. There are different philosophies on how many dispensations there are. I would say everybody believes in at least two in some fashion, uh, but I believe that there are seven, and I'm gonna show them to you tonight. Seven dispensations of scripture. Now, before we move forward, let's, let's bow, and let's ask God to bless our time in his word, okay? Heavenly Father, I thank you for this privilege. What a joy uh, to open your word and to see what's in there, God, and I thank you that you have seen fit to include prophetic scripture in your word. And I believe that it's not there for no reason. I don't believe that this is a a fringe interest. I don't believe it's a niche enterprise. I believe that because it's part of your revelation and because you have inhabited us by your spirit, God, that you want us to have a strong desire to decipher your word. And we have the potential to do that because of the spirit that lives in us. Would you bless our time in the scriptures tonight? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let us look now at these dispensations because if you don't, if you don't get a handle on these, you're gonna struggle because we're gonna talk about prophecy. We're gonna talk about the end times. Some of you are all about the end times. You're like, I wanna hear about the rapture. I wanna hear about the tribulation. I wanna hear about the, uh, the millennial kingdom. I wanna hear about the eternal state, all of that. Listen, if you don't understand dispensations, you will struggle with the rapture. You won't understand the purpose of it. You're gonna wrestle with some core teachings about it. You won't understand uh, the tribulation if you don't understand uh, dispensations because they have to do with the nature and the purpose of the tribulation. You will not get the, the millennial kingdom. You won't understand what it's all about if you don't understand the concept of the ages of God. So here's the first age in your notes. It's innocence, innocence. Now, this is the shortest age. It runs from Genesis 1 through Genesis 3. That's it. Very short age. What do we know about creation? Man was created. What was his condition? He was perfect, right? He was innocent. He was holy. Uh, Adam and Eve made in the image of God. And they were given a test. They were given a dispensation, a requirement. Here is the command of God in your notes. You probably already know this. You can jot this down. Never eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do, what happens? You die, right? If you disobey, you will die. That's the command of God. Never eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The promise upon your disobedience is death. Now, in Genesis 2, we see that Literally spoken in verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. Notice the great provision and permission that God grants. How many trees can Adam eat of? Every tree in the garden, but of the tree. Singular. One tree. Out of all those trees, there's one tree. One tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's the command. That's it. Straightforward. how they do not so hot, not so hot. In your notes, here's man's disobedience. Adam and Eve, as you know, tempted by the serpent, eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I mean, it, it, you, you, you've known this story since you were knee high to a grasshopper. If you went to Sunday school, you know how this turns out. So we humans are off to a raging start. We are just, just off and running, ladies and gentlemen, as a, as a race. Uh, Genesis 3 verse 6 the aftermath or or, or leading up to it rather it says so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate so there is a command there is a disobedience God is just so there must be a judgment. Here's the judgment in your notes. The fall of man. The fall of man. We also call that the curse. The curse of what? Of sin. Okay? They eat and immediately there is a curse on all mankind. What are the results of this curse? Man physically begins to die. Man certainly immediately dies spiritually to god he comes under the spell of satan all of nature is touched by the fall Uh, not just adam not just eve but the whole universe is now tainted and corrupted okay and we're going to see how that plays out and i would add to that as you're jotting this down i would also add the phrase human conflict human conflict what does that mean well, as we move forward and Adam is confronted with his actions, what does Adam do? That woman that you gave me, she, she gave, you know, he starts to blame. So as the joke goes, the man blamed the woman, the woman blamed the snake, and the snake didn't have a leg to stand on. You guys laugh harder at that than the people in California, I'll tell you that. Now in Genesis 3, it says, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. in childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. You ladies remember what childbirth was like? That was a lot of fun, wasn't it? You can trace the pain and the travail of childbirth to this moment, right here, you see. Uh, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. How many of you remember the last fight you had with your spouse? This was the origin of that. The battle is I'm not kidding. It started here, okay? It's, it's a product of the fall. Man-woman relationship is a product of the fall in, in, the, in terms of the conflict that we have. Uh, to Adam, verse 17, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and... Uh-oh. I didn't say it, folks. <laughs> God said it. I didn't say it. Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I've commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Now, I'm not putting the blame on Eve. Please understand. You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Here's what I want you to see. In pain, you shall eat of the ground all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring for you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. He's saying there's going to be toil and hardship. How many of you really, 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 really enjoy work? Some of you are like, oh, yeah, I love yeah come on. The toil, no longer, Adam, will you be able to just reach out and pluck a nice, juicy piece of fruit from the branch and have all of your needs met. You're going to have to work, son. You're going to have to sweat and toil, and that's going to be harder for you than you think because you were created perfect. Now you're not perfect. Your body will wear out. You will get tired. You're going to grow weary. You're going to have ailments. You're going to struggle. In fact, he says, Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Meaning there's going to be physical death for you. You're going to die one day. And so this did not end with Adam. It extends to all of us. All of our bodies wear out. How many of you got up this morning with a groan? And a creak? Huh? I'm like, wow, where, where did this start? You know, you always think you're younger than you are. Well, it started farther back than you think. It started with Adam. Because the sin of Adam was inherited. Generation by generation, all the way down to you and me. And not only was it inherited, it was, it was imputed to us, to every single person who would ever live. Romans five twelve. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, physical death, Through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam was representative of us, and therefore we sinned in Adam. So that's the first age, short and sweet, all right? Didn't last long, Innocence. What's the second age? God changes the rules. Now we got an age in your notes called conscience. We're in the age of conscience after that. After they fell, God does something interesting. You recall what he said to them, In the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Did they die? They did not die. Some of you are like, well, they died spiritually. Yes, they died spiritually. But was that what God meant? No, I think God was speaking literally there. You will die. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. How are we to interpret that? Physical death. But they didn't die. Why not? Because God intervened. God did something for them. God provided a sacrifice. He took an animal, we read about it in the scripture, and that animal died. He shed its blood, he he slew the animal, he took the skins, covered them, instead of that pathetic fig leaf that they were using, they are now covered. And so in doing this, God instituted something. And it is the oldest religious concept known to man, that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And so God institutes this. And after he does this, he pronounces an edict, and he addresses the serpent directly. And in Genesis 3.15, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And that right there, folks, is the first, the very first articulation of the gospel. That is the first time. Trivia question, where does the gospel first appear in scripture? It's not Matthew. It's Genesis chapter three. You've got the offspring of woman. Who is that? That's Jesus Christ. He is prophesying about the son of God, the son of man, Jesus. What will he do? He will bruise the serpent's head. Some versions say he will crush the serpent's head. How will he do that? We know that he does that at Calvary. But, but when he does, it will happen at a price. There will be a price because right here it says, and you shall bruise his heel, meaning uh, he will lay down his life. At Calvary, what is that bruise his heel? Some say that on the cross at Calvary, Christ, uh, one foot was on top of the other. They drove a spike through the, the top foot and it went through his back heel bone into the cross. And so this is indicative in this language of the atonement for sin that would cost the life of Jesus. And so the gospel is given here, and this is what scholars call the proto-evangelium. That's a Latin phrase, means first gospel. That's what it means. And so there's something here. There's there's a sacrifice here. There's always something to believe in. There's a sacrifice that points to Jesus, uh, just like God slaying those animals and covering the sinful pair there would be the shedding of blood by the lamb who takes away the sin of the world and that blood would cover our sin and you see that pictured all throughout the old testament in the judaistic system And so conscience comes from the Latin word, con is the first part of that, it means with, scientia means knowledge, so we have this age in which we operate with knowledge. What is the tree that Adam and Eve ate? From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and when they sinned, they obtained the knowledge of good and evil. They knew right from wrong, as do we. We all possess this knowledge. And so God's saying, govern yourself according to the innate moral sense that you now have. I'm not going to govern you according to your innocence because you're not innocent. But you've got this knowledge now of right and wrong. And we all possess this. Some say, well, that's, that's, that's cultural. No, it's not cultural. People who say that, C.S. Lewis says, if anybody says that that absolute right and wrong is a cultural construct, uh, just punch those people in the nose, which I am not advocating, you understand, but that will demonstrate that they know right from wrong, because when it's personal, they will know they've been wrong. Everybody's got this innate sense of morality, and with that in mind, when we look at Genesis 4, what, what do we see Cain and Abel doing. Look at Genesis 4 4 through 7. It says, And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offspring, but for Cain and his offspring, he had no regard. What's happening here? You remember that sacrifice that the Lord made for Adam and Eve? Well, that's become an institution. He now expects it of all people. And so at at a certain point, the people bring a sacrifice to God. And that sacrifice needs to be in accordance with the paradigm of the sacrifice that God originated. Meaning, it's got to be what kind of a sacrifice? A blood sacrifice. And so here comes Abel. Who is Abel? He's the world's first shepherd. He raises the lambs, the sheep. And so he brings the finest and the firstborn of his flock, the choice of, the, of his flock. And he presents that to God. It's a blood sacrifice, it's acceptable to God. Cain is the world's first farmer. He's an Aggie, all right? What does he bring to God? He brings broccoli. He brings zucchini. Asparagus. Now, it doesn't actually say that. I'm just pontificating. But he does not bring in accordance with God's paradigm. It's not a blood sacrifice. It is the work of Cain's hands. It is reproducible, you understand. And so he is doing it Cain's way, not God's way, and God rejects it. And we read on in Genesis 4, in verse 5, it says, so Cain was very angry because his sacrifice was rejected, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary for you, but you must rule over it. And so God rejects it because it's not a blood sacrifice, not what God asked for. He also rejects it because Cain brings it with evil intent. He's doing it his way. He's filled with pride. And if you look at the counsel God gives Cain, here is the dispensational requirement in your notes God's command do good and offer sacrifice in penance. Sacrifice God's way, offer it in penance. Pretty straightforward command in this age. Does it work? No. Why not? Why can't you govern man by his innate sense of right and wrong? He's got the knowledge of good and evil now. Can't you govern him according to his conscience? Man's got a conscience. Doesn't his conscience work? Is there something wrong with God? No. Is there something wrong with conscience? No. You have a conscience. Your conscience works just fine. You know right from wrong. It works. What's the problem? It's your heart. It's the heart of man. It's not the conscience of man. It's the heart of man of man. That's the problem. And this doesn't end with Cain. Look at Genesis six eleven. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw. Because you already know what Cain did. What did he go on to do? He was filled with envy and jealousy. He slays his brother. First murder in the history of the world. So we're not done there. That didn't end all of the evil that man would do. We, we see that it spreads and it fills the earth. And behold, all the earth is corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. You see that word corrupt three times in that one passage right there. So what is man's disobedience in your notes? Man corrupts his way on the earth and it is filled with violence. There is a worldwide corruption except for one family, as we shall see. But this corruption is to the extremity that the entire race, save one family, is corrupted. Now, in Genesis 5, there's a guy named Enoch. And if you read Genesis 5, it reads like you're walking through a graveyard and you're you're looking at the headstones. You ever done that? You ever read headstones? And as you read in Genesis 5, it just looks like a bunch of headstones. Adam lived X amount of years, dot, 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 and he died. You know, uh, Lamech lived X amount of years and he died. And it just, everybody ends with that epitaph, and he died until you get to this guy. And what we read about Enoch is that he walked with God. So he is righteous. We don't learn a lot about Enoch other than he walked with God. You read about him in Hebrews 11 a little bit. You read about him in the book of Jude. And what we know about Enoch is that God took this righteous man and revealed something to him. There was a revelation God imparted to Enoch about a coming judgment. And so this righteous man walks with God. And what it says about him in Genesis 5 is is not that he died, but it says he was not, for God took him. He just reached down and shh. Snatched him up. And what you've got is the world's first rapture. God took him. He just took him. And I want to know what is the revelation that God gave Enoch about a coming judgment. What was that? Well, it was apparently so visceral that Enoch had a son, and you might know his son's name. His son's name is Methuselah. You ever heard of Methuselah? What is Methuselah known for? oldest man to ever live 969 years that's right now his name is very interesting it comes from two words in the hebrew you got muth which means mortality death okay and then shalach which means to send like you're like you're sending forth a javelin okay and literally what this guy's name is he dies and it is sent what will be sent when Methuselah dies? I've got a Bible timeline on my wall in my office, and I love to study it. And what I see on that timeline is that 969 years after the birth of Methuselah, two things happen. Number one, Methuselah dies. Number two, the flood comes. This boy's name was a prophecy about a judgment that God prophetically revealed to Enoch. And so the flood in your notes is God's judgment. God's judgment upon disobedience of mankind is the flood. And the results of that, every human being is destroyed except for eight people, eight people. Methuselah has a grandson who happens to be the great-grandson of Enoch, and his name is Noah. And Noah has three sons. And so saved in that ark are eight people. You got Noah, you got Mrs. Noah, you got Shem, you got Mrs. Shem, you got Ham, you got Mrs. Ham, and you got Japheth, and you got Mrs. Japheth. And so eight people saved through water aboard the ark. The flood kills everybody else. The ark comes to rest, as you know, on Mount Ararat. And so... A new dispensation begins when they come off that ark. And this is the third age in your notes. It's called government. Government. When Noah comes off the ark, God's not going to simply say do good and sacrifice. We've tried that. Didn't work. It's a proven failure. So he he gives new rules. And in verse uh, 6 of chapter 9, Genesis 9, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image, and you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And so here's the command based on that verse in your notes. You got man now governing man. God says, I'm not going to govern you. You're going to govern yourselves. You're going to govern each other. Man will govern man. According to what? According to the absolute of God the Creator and of man with the inalienable right of dignity and life. Here's man. He's created in the image of God. If you go back to that verse, you see that uh, uh, if a man sheds blood, by man shall his blood be shed. What does that institute? What's it sound like? Capital punishment. Wow. You mean that wasn't instituted in the law under Moses? Uh, No, it was pre law. Under Noah. Isn't that something? Capital punishment instituted by God. Under Noah. After the ark. And I would add to that, I don't have it on the screen, but I would add in your notes, in your margin, if you, wherever you got room, scatter and multiply. Scatter and multiply. Make babies. Okay? Populate the earth. I've wiped everybody out. i got to populate the earth again. And I don't want you to stay right here on Ararat. I want you to go out. I want you to fill the earth, right? That is the command. How's it going to work? Well, now, did innocence work? No. Did conscience work? No. Well, now he's taken all the bad people away. Surely, surely, government will work. (laughs) Your laughter is evident of your viewpoint on government. Has government ever worked? No. No. Is there something wrong with government? Actually, no. There's nothing wrong with government. Now, some forms of government are better than others or worse than others, but God created the concept of government. So is something uh, theoretically, philosophically wrong with government in general? No. Heaven has a government. It's called a kingdom. So is there something wrong with government, or is it the governors? It's the governors. It's people. And so here is man's disobedience. I've shared the command with you. Here's the disobedience. It's the Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel. He says, we're not going anywhere. Scatter. We're not going to stink and scatter. We're going to stay right here. So man puts himself in God's place. He doesn't scatter. He stays in one spot, tries to attain status with God. Who's that remind you of? Satan, Lucifer. I will be like the most high. I will ascend above the stars. These people are like Lucifer. They want to make a name for themselves. They say this in verse 4 of Genesis 11. Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed. See? Lest we be dispersed. That was part of God's command. Be dispersed. So they stay in one spot. And so here's God's judgment in your notes. It's the confusion of man's languages, of man's tongues, and the dispersion of man over the earth. He says, you're not going to scatter? Fine. I'll scatter you. I'll confuse your languages so you can't understand each other. You can't finish this tower because you can't, you can't decipher or comprehend what each person is saying. And he says in Genesis eleven four, behold, they are one people. They will have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they'll do. Nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. And so you read on, you see that he confuses their languages. And now they, they want to scatter because they can't relate to one another. So God separates them. I got a 12-year-old son. Throughout his life, he's been a, shall we say, a chatty little fella. And at times, his teachers have had to remove him from other little boys his age because he can get a little talky, you know. And that's what you do with little boys. You got to separate them. So God is separating this rambunctious bunch of children of men right here. And they're someday going to reunite. And every time man reunites, not under the auspices of God, they unite in rebellion every time. And it'll happen again in Revelation 17, and it won't work out well then for them either. And so we've got a new age in the aftermath of all this. And in your notes, the fourth age, it's called promise. Uh, Promise. So as all these nations now, they're nations. They're different people groups. In the Greek, that's ethnos. Uh, you know, the Great Commission, go therefore make disciples of all peoples, ethnos, all nations, and they go out, and there's some 70 of them, you see, and out of those 70, God chooses one, and it starts with one man, and he says, I'm going to make a people where there was not prior a people, and he's going to do something. In your notes, he will do something he's never done before. He gives a promise to a people. And the promise begins with a man named Abram, later known as Abraham. And he and his wife, first her name is Sarai, it's going to be Sarah, and he makes a promise to them. And so he's, he's choosing one people out of all the peoples on earth, one people. These are going to be my people. I will govern this people, and then all the other peoples will see them, and they will be the paradigm. They will be my model of righteousness. Is it going to be the, 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 the Germans? Is it going to be the French? Is it going to be the Russians? Is it going to be the Tar Heels? No. It's going to be the descendants of Abraham. We will call them the Jews. The Jews. And in Genesis 12, 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so he says, I'm going to give you a land and I'm going to multiply you. And so this command, I want you to see in your notes, it's threefold. God gives Abraham and his descendants a threefold command. Now, you, you read that scripture with me, and you see that it, it contains various things, but one of the benefits is not simply res, reserved for the descendants of Abraham. We are all going to get in on it, because he says, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Are you glad about that? Are there some Gentiles in the house that are really glad? to be blessed by a singular Jewish descendant of Abraham named Jesus Christ. Amen. And so this is the threefold command that God gives in this age. Number one, stay in the land. Remember now, he's not governing the whole world. He's just governing a people. Stay in the land. Okay. Genesis 26, sojourn in this land. And I will be with you and bless you for to you and your offspring I'll give all these lands and I will establish the oath I swore to Abraham your father. Right? Stay in the land. Number two, believe. Trust in Jehovah alone. In this land, it's called Canaan. There are a lot of pagans in the land. Don't follow their ways. Don't worship their gods. Worship me. Okay? I don't care if AI does it, Bethel, Sodom and Gomorrah, you worship me. Number three, Do justice and command your household to follow in the ways of God. Okay? Stay in the promise. Honor the Lord of the promise. Do justice, equity, honor your fellow man. How'd they do? Well, you get near the end of Genesis, there's a fellow named Joseph. He's one of, Jacob Jacob is the grandson of Abraham. Jacob's got, you know, Abraham had one son. Isaac Isaac had two sons. One of those sons is Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. We're not in a nation yet. And one of those 12 sons is a guy named Joseph. He's dad's favorite. His brothers hate his guts. And so they want to kill him. And he's got one brother that stands up and says, let's not kill him, there's no money in murder, let's sell him. What a nice brother. And they sell him into slavery. And Joseph ends up in Egypt. And if you know the story of Joseph, God, through a series of events, elevates him to a place of prestige and decision making. There's a famine back in Canaan. In a roundabout way, Joseph's brothers end up in Egypt uh, to get food from Egypt. Because Joseph has led them through the phantom, and he's he's stored up all of this wealth of grain. And so they come down. There's a a big reunion. It's heartfelt. They are broken for what they've done to their brother, and it's tearful. And they bring Jacob down, and, and, and he cries and is reunited with his son. And it's a sweet story, but they stay down there in Egypt. And here's man's disobedience. In your notes, Joseph's brothers attempt to do away with him while in Egypt, They defiled themselves with idols. And you read about that in Ezekiel 20, verse 5. Thus says the Lord God, on the day when I chose Israel, I swore to the offspring of the house of Jacob, making known to them in the land of Egypt. I swore to them, saying, I'm the Lord your God. On that day I swore to them I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them. land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. And I said, cast away the detestable things your eyes. Feast on every one of you. Do not defile yourselves with all the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God, but they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things that their eyes feasted on nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. So very clearly we've got a disobedience in this age, violating the command of God in the age of promise. And so God is just. There's a judgment. He says, (laughs) you like Egypt? Why don't you stay a while? In your notes, God's judgment is Egyptian bondage lasting 430 years Ezekiel 20, verse 8, I said I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. They defile themselves with idols. He says, I'm going to give you what you want. I'll let you have all those idols for over four centuries. Now, is the promise of God defunct with Israel? No. It's an unconditional promise. His keeping of his end of that promise is not dependent on Israel's obedience and so God will keep his promise he will make them a mighty nation he will restore them to the land and yes thankfully he will bring through Abraham a seed who will bless all the families of the earth and so he keeps that promise and it's not entirely fulfilled yet but it will be it will be but now we've got a new age after this in your notes fifth age law God says you seem to be having trouble keeping my commandments. Uh, let me write them down for you. And so he raises up a guy named Moses. And so when, when Moses comes down from Sinai with these tablets, that is uh, the law manifested. And in Exodus 19, he says, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, this is not, a, not the same promise as the Abrahamic covenant, this is the Mosaic covenant, if you will keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. So here's his command. It's three parts. Three things. Number one, in your notes, obey the law. Okay, here's my law. This is the age of law. Obey the law. And that, that includes, by the way, listen to the prophets. And I would jot that down in your margin. Obey the law. Listen to the prophets. Same same part of the command. Now, any, any individual component of the law, people could keep, they were able to keep it. The, the totality of the law, nobody's gonna be able to keep that. Too much, too much. It reveals their need. It's a mirror. Uh, number two, when you fail, sacrifice for forgiveness. This, this is just kind of in keeping. So in the law, there is a system of sacrifice. We're gonna point ahead prophetically to Jesus, you see. And then number three, wait for the coming of Messiah. And and during this period of the law, there are many, many prophecies about the coming of Jesus, the coming of the Messiah. We're going to look at those in the weeks to come. Uh, Moses was among the first. He says in Deuteronomy... God says through him I will raise up for them a prophet like you Moses from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all I command him and whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name I myself will require it of him okay how'd they do in this age of law did they keep the law I mean God wrote it down for them Surely if he he writes it down, they'll they'll obey it. He's taking away all their excuses now. Didn't they listen to the prophets? I mean, God's speaking directly to them through the prophets. What'd they do with all those prophets? Here's the words of Jesus in Matthew 23, verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets. What? Kills the prophets. Stones those sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers a brood under her wings, but you were not willing. So here's man's disobedience. You got in your notes, disregard for the law, which which also included that they distorted it, they tried to make it into a means of salvation, not what God intended. Uh, you got idolatry. There's a lot of pagan worship in this period of time. Murder of the prophets. They killed the... To be a prophet is one of the worst jobs you could have because almost all of them were slain. King Manasseh stuck Isaiah in a hollowed-out carob tree and had it sawn in two while the prophet is still in there. So they kill almost all the prophets, including, ultimately, the greatest prophet of all, Jesus himself the very son of God. Joel, Jonah, Isaiah, Amos, Hosea, Micah, Zephaniah, they go into captivity. God sends them Haggai, sends them Zechariah, Malachi. They never repent. They never repent. And so ultimately, the the most slow, torturous killing of all is Christ himself on the cross. And in Deuteronomy 32, we read in verse 19, the Lord saw this and rejected them. Wow. Because he was angered. By his sons and daughters, I will hide my face from them and see what their end will be. They are a perverse generation, children who are unfaithful. They made me jealous by what is no God and angered me with their worthless idols. I will make them envious by those who are not a people. Huh. I will make them angry by a nation that has no understanding and so the judgment of God in your notes is this. It's the dispersion and hardening of Israel. There will be a blindness that befalls them uh, after the death of Christ. And it has been prophesied all along. We saw it coming. Isaiah twenty nine ten: For the Lord has poured out on you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and has covered your heads, the seers. And Paul references this very prophecy in Romans 11:8 and he calls it a spirit of stupor, a deep sleep, there is a blindness. And so today has Israel turned to her Messiah? Collectively no. Individual Jews, absolutely. There's a wonderful ministry, Jews for Jesus. We support them, I believe. And you go to New York City, they're on every corner, they're in the subways, they're leading Jews to Christ. And it's amazing and there are, there are tremendous Jewish people that have trusted in Jesus. They're messianic Jews. And so, yes, it's possible that they can come to Christ, but as a people, they have not. They have not. There is a general blindness, and it's heartbreaking. But what it has allowed for, God says, I bring in another people who have no understanding. They are a nation that, that, that was off the radar to Israel, and this is the sixth age. In your notes, it's called the age of grace. Grace. And this lasts almost the rest of your Bible. There's one more age we're going to talk about. But in the wisdom of God, the brutal murder of Christ uh, caused Israel to be... God pushed pause on his program for Israel and he grafted into that tree a wild branch of Gentiles. Gentiles. And I am grateful for that. And here is the command in the age of grace. In your notes, repent, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and submit to the law of Christ. When did this age begin, incidentally? Acts chapter 2. Jesus has been crucified. He has risen from the dead. He has now ascended to heaven. The disciples are just kind of bumming. They're in the upper room. They don't know what to do next. And here comes the Holy Spirit. Like a wind, and he indwells them, he fills them, and they go out on the day of Pentecost, and they preach the gospel, and 3,000 come to faith in Christ, and the church is born. The church is born. Acts 17:30, "The Times of ignorance God overlooked now. He commands all people everywhere, not just Jews, all people, everywhere to repent. Ephesians 5:18: Don't get drunk with wine. That is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Okay, we're not under the law, we're under grace, the law of Christ, you see. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That is the command of the age of grace. And in keeping that, there is no room for idolatry. You must forsake all other masters. No one could serve two masters. And so we've got, we live in an age, and it's the age we're in right now, you understand. We call it the church age, because the church was born at the dawn of this age. And we're going to be around for the duration of this age. Surely there's not going to be any disobedience in this age. Here's man's disobedience. In your notes, it's the rejection of Christ by the world. Planet Earth is in the process of disobeying the command of this age. 1 Timothy 4.1, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. There's gonna be false teaching that will muddle the message of the gospel. It's happening now. Happening right now. 2 Timothy 4.3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Is that going on? People hearing what they want to hear. So there's going to be a judgment. There's going to be a judgment. Uh, because if, 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 if all is well and good because grace is here, how come this isn't the last book in the Bible, the gospel? No. No, you have a, the, the Bible ends up being a very, very, very bloody book. Because there's a book called Revelation. And if you read Revelation, you see what God's judgment for the disobedience of this age will be in your notes. It's called the Tribulation. And we are going to explain in detail what the Tribulation will be like, some of it, okay? It is called the time of Jacob's trouble. Now, partly it's called the time of Jacob's trouble and the 70th week of Daniel. When we get to the 70th, uh, the 70 weeks prophecy, we're going to understand a huge component of the tribulation is about Israel. It's about Israel. It's not just about Israel, but it's, 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 a lot of it is about Israel. It is not about the church. And I'll explain that too when we get to the rapture. Okay? But God will, through the tribulation, bend the world until it breaks. Uh, periodically, you'll come across in your Old Testament a phrase, on that day. In Isaiah, in Jeremiah, okay? That day, that day, the day of the Lord, the day of vengeance. That's this period. The tribulation. Uh, I don't know if this is in your notes. If it's not, I would jot it down, but the tribulation will do two things. I'd write this in your margin. It's gonna do two things. Number one, it will judge mankind for the rejection of God. So it's, it's for the unrighteous. It will judge mankind for the rejection of God. And number two, it will bring Israel to its knees. Okay? It will bring Israel to its knees to its knees. It will judge mankind for the rejection of God and it will bring Israel to its knees. And that's why when you read Revelation and this is why I love Israel is because God loves Israel. And God has not given up on Israel. He made a promise to Israel, he is going to keep that promise. Though they have been disobedient, he has not forgotten them and he will bring them back to him in massive Numbers. We're going to study this. I'm going to show you. There will be a revival like the world has never seen. You know who's going to who will be used by God to instigate the revival? About 144,000 Jewish Billy Grams. It's going to be amazing. And there will be a new age that comes on the heels of the close of the age of grace. The seventh age. In your notes, it's the kingdom. We call this the millennial reign of Christ, the thousand years. It will last a thousand years. I'm going to talk about this too, okay? But God has imposed his will on planet earth. He's taken the Christians out, I believe. I teach a pre-trib rapture. We'll, we'll talk about that. I'll explain why. Uh, they've escaped the wrath. Israel has come back to our Messiah. People who come to faith during the tribulation and survive it will enter into this age, you see, and the ones who don't survive it will be resurrected and will observe this age. And so the kingdom is when Christ returns at the end of the tribulation to the earth, not just to come and get his church, but he's gonna set foot on planet earth and he's gonna step forth and establish his kingdom. Uh, before he does that, he will, he will deal with a little matter called the Antichrist, and he's going to make short work of him and the false prophet and all who follow him, and I'm going to tell you all about that too. It's going to be fun, but needless to say, it won't take long for Jesus to deal with this whippersnapper, all right? And uh, he, he's going to return with his church, he's going to raise the Old Testament saints, That'll be pretty cool. Then you'll get to see Moses and Abraham and that crowd. And uh, their spirits are with him even now, but their bodies will be raised. And he's gonna raise those tribulation saints because there'll be people during the tribulation that will lose their life. We'll talk about that as well. And then he will set up his kingdom. And it will be a kingdom that will be devoid of evil because during this thousand year reign, that old serpent, the devil, is gonna be dealt with. He's gonna be chained up. In the pit. Won't that be a great day? That Satan will have nothing to do on planet Earth. There will be no tempter, which means there will be no sin. You understand? And so in an age like that, what, on the, what in the world would God command in the kingdom? In your notes, what do you do in a kingdom? You worship the king. You worship the king. Zechariah 14, 16, everybody worships. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year. To where? To Jerusalem. That's where Christ will reign. In person. In person. And so they will worship the king. Now, let me just say this. How are you declared righteous in every age? By faith. It's the same as it was in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve put their faith in the sacrifice that God made for them and in the promise of what he had uttered to the serpent that through the seed of the woman, there will come a savior. So they're always looking ahead. They're always looking ahead to the savior. How are you declared righteous? By belief, by faith in the promise of God that involves sacrifice. And so we saw that all through the Old Testament. Anyone who was righteous in the Old Testament did not merely trust in in works. They participated in sacrifice and they trusted in what that sacrifice symbolized. So from age to age, that never changed. And it's true here. It's true in the final age, in human history. Okay? Will there be a disobedience? Amazingly, yes. Yes, there will. Because at the end of the thousand years, something's going to happen. God will unchain Satan one last time. He's going to let him out. And the question you have on your mind right now is why? Why would he do that? Uh, I, I believe that there will be children born during that era. And I believe that they will need the opportunity to say yes or no to God. And so the tempter will be loosed. Revelation 20, verse 7, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. So amazing results on the part of the tempter at the end of an age which has been defined by perfection, he comes out and like that he's deceived an innumerable mass of humanity and rallies them against Christ. And it says in verse nine, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. They come to defeat Christ at Jerusalem. So in your notes, man's disobedience, it's the last rebellion of man. This is it. This is the last gasp of rebellious humanity, of sinful man, because even those born in the millennium will have a sin nature. They won't be tempted for a millennia. But then when the serpent is loosed, many, many, many of them will will fall to temptation and they will rebel against Christ. In Revelation 20, here's how that's going to work out. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown. This will be the hallelujah that we'll all get to witness. He was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet, that's the antichrist and, and his religious leader, where they were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Can I get a hallelujah on that? That's gonna be, that's gonna be amazing to see. Now, as you can see, we're, that's at the end of the book. Okay, how much is left after that verse? If you're, if you're reading in, in Revelation and you read Revelation verse 20, uh, chapter 20, verse 10, what's left at that point? What do you do? What do you do if you're God? You're at the end of that age. Every age is signified by a command, a disobedience, and remember, God is just. There's always a judgment. What's the judgment at the end of the age The kingdom in your notes here it is. It's twofold. Number one, he incinerates the entire cosmos, the entire cosmos, meaning the physical universe, because he will be reigning physically on the earth. Okay, it will be a physical kingdom, it's not a spiritual kingdom, it's a physical kingdom, and so the universe will be incinerated. Uh, We read it in Revelation 21, verse 1, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Peter also prophesies about this. That's number one. Number two, he raises every wicked person who ever lived to be judged at the great white throne. Now, there are two two primary judgments in Scripture. There's more than two, but there's two main judgments. Uh, One of them is called the judgment seat of Christ, That's the one you want to be at, all right? Because that's where all the Christians will stand in judgment. You will be judged. Did you know that? You will be judged. But you're not going to be judged uh, to determine your eternity. That's already determined, you see. You will be judged according to works done in the body for the purpose of eternal reward. So heaven is your destiny, But how you spend that eternity in terms of his recognition of you is dependent upon works that you've done for the cause of Christ. So he's looking not just at the physical works that you do as a believer. He's looking at your motivation. And the Bible speaks of crowns, and there are eternal rewards. Salvation is not at issue here. It's all about crowns, you see. Now, the other major judgment is called the great white throne. You don't want to be at that judgment. That is for all the unrighteous. It's all over but the screaming at that judgment, okay? Because that is merely a formal sentencing. Revelation twenty eleven. I saw a great white throne, him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And then I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written, in the books, according to what they had done, and the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, second death see. All these people have died before. So they're, they're, they're dead, they're raised, they're already in hell, by the way. They're raised, they're formally sentenced, and then there's a second death because they were resurrected. And there's a second death. And if anyone's name, this is terrifying, was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay? That's quite a book we got. That's quite a book. Lewis Sperry Chaffer, one of my heroes, great theologian, he said, the Bible is not such a book that man would write if he could or could write if he would. Only God could write this book. Now, I have just outlined the way this book, what falls out of it. As you read it, you observe these ages of God and man. Now, there are a few things that I want to tell you about dispensationalism. It it became very, very popular in the 20th century. Do you know why? Because um, prior to the 20th century, Man was very idealistic. Man had a a, a great deal of optimism, especially the religious community. The Christians really believed. If you recall the Crusades, what was that all about? Building a kingdom on the earth. They really believed we're building the kingdom now. Now we're going to create a kingdom, and then Christ is going to come, and he's going to. It was dominionism, you see. We're doing it. Things were getting better. Technology is getting better. You know, we're spreading the faith. And all of this, well, 20th century was the bloodiest century in human history, right? Two world wars and and beyond and a holocaust. But I would also say that something happened in 1948 that blew people's minds. There was a nation that was created called Israel and there were all of these Old Testament prophecies about what God was gonna do for Israel, and nobody could imagine that any of it would ever come to pass. Surely God's done with Israel. They don't even exist. I mean, look, there's nobody in that land. Well, there are, but they're Arabs, or other peoples. Where are the Jews? They're cast to the four corners of the earth. They're in Europe, and they're getting slaughtered there. What's going on? God's not gonna keep that promise they're a miracle people because they're God's people. His Messiah came through them and he will not forsake them. And so Israel was created as a nation in 1948. And what that did is it allowed people to see that whoa, whoa, these prophecies don't need to be symbolic. They can be literally fulfilled. And so I'm gonna give you, as I close, I'll try to be quick. Here's some distinctives of dispensationalism. Number one, if you want to write them down, you can. If you can just take a picture of the screen, you do that, all right? Number one, the periods change according to the ten- continual sin of man. These change because of man's disobedience. It's not a cosmic tennis match between good and evil. We are what we are because of the fall, okay? Number two, salvation. as I've said, salvation never changes. It's always represented through God's mercy and the atonement of a mediator. God intervenes. God makes a sacrifice. From Eden to the kingdom, this is the case. It's always about atonement for sin, the shedding of blood for the remission of sin. Number three, the content of your faith does change. What does that mean? That's called progressive revelation. That means Abraham didn't know the name Jesus. Okay? He just understood a promise. And there was some mention of a blessing for all peoples. Abraham believed. Paul says he believed and he was justified. He was declared righteous before he got circumcised. So it had nothing to do with works. It was always by faith. But the content, God gives a little more, a little more, a little more as the revelation, as the uh, generations roll on, as the ages continue. So by the by the. By the book of Acts, chapter two, the mystery is revealed. This thing called the church. You never saw the church in the Old Testament. And number four, history heads to a point. It's the kingdom. It's a literal kingdom. It's not allegorical. The Bible as a whole is a historical narrative. God is the God of history as well as heaven. And history will end up, human history, will end up with God reigning physically in the form of Christ on the earth. It's not an allegory. It's literal. Number five. Prophetic scripture is to be taken literally. It is not to be symbolized or, or spiritualized. We don't go back in the Old Testament and just try to lay some grid of our own theological preferences on top of what God has said. And that's why that is a major difference from Reformed theology. You look at the Reformers, all the great commentaries. John Calvin, Charles Spurgeon, they wrote commentaries on every book of the Bible except for one, Revelation. They didn't know what to do with that book. They had no idea what to do with it because prophetic scripture is to be taken literally. Okay, They could never have imagined uh, that we would get to where Revelation says we get. Literally. Number six, the promises and covenants with Israel are still binding. Still binding. God will put them in the land. Their borders, when that covenant is fulfilled, will be bigger than what Israel is geographically today. Okay? Uh, He will give them descendants with a king from David's line. Who's that? That's Christ. Number seven, the church in Israel are kept distinct. No matter how much you might want to be Israel, church, you're not. You're not Israel. You are a different people. Uh, One of my favorite, I love hymns, I do, I love hymns. One of my favorite hymns is All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name. You know that? All hail the power of Jesus' name. Now there's a verse in there that I can't sing because it says, Ye chosen seed of Israel's race, ye ransom from the fall. Can't sing that. Can't sing that. You know why? Because I am not Israel's seed. I am not. I am Gentile Joe up here, man. That's me. Uh, Number eight. Uh, If you're dispensationalist, you are pessimistic toward man's ability, but optimistic toward God's faithfulness. Meaning we don't believe we're building the kingdom. We are not into creating dominion for God right here, right now. We're not the crusaders, okay? He comes back. He establishes the kingdom. We're just recruiting subjects for that kingdom. You with me? Okay, so don't don't think that we're gonna make utopia and then Christ will just assume his throne. No, we win people to Jesus so they can participate in the kingdom that he will start. And then number nine, sad to say, but dispensationalism is not the predominant belief of the church historically. I have no problem admitting that. I really don't, and I've explained why. People could not imagine that all these prophecies involving Israel would come true because they could not fathom that Israel would ever be reunited. It it didn't even make sense in their minds. Um, another, Another thing, and this is why some people have an aversion to dispensational ideas, is that dispensationalism does not produce liberalism. What, what it does at times produce are weirdos. <laughs> okay? Uh, we, do, we do churn out a few crazies from time to time. I will just say that. I mean, that's why you got to stay to the scripture because it's easy to have some offshoots. You know, you got some Adventist folks. You got some, some people that get into some weird strains of dispensational thought, you know, there's always some guy in Montana or West Virginia holding a snake and wearing a robe waiting for Jesus, you know, that's just, there are a few of those, and then number 10, in dispensationalism, the chief end of God in all history is what? It's his glory, it's his glory, Uh, some of my reformed friends believe that the primary theme of the Bible is the redemption of man, the salvation of man. It's pretty important, but it is not the the ultimate purpose of God. It is perhaps the greatest means to accomplishing the ultimate purpose of God. Because if you don't redeem people, if you don't see souls saved, they can't bring glory to God. But the ultimate purpose throughout all of this, when we can't make sense of these ages, the reason is the glory of God. That's our starting place, folks. I wanted to give you the framework because where we're going is very, very exciting. But you got to start with this, this, uh, this skeleton, this concept, so that it begins to fall into place for you. I'm excited about next Wednesday. I hope you all come back, uh, bring a friend. Uh, we're going to talk about some cool stuff in the book of Daniel. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we give you glory and honor and praise because you alone are worthy. We stand in awe as we see your plan unfold in the words of your book. Let us be faithful stewards of it. Let us learn to divide the word of God rightly. And we pray your blessing upon us as we continue in this journey. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.